You're listening to the Liberty News Radio Network, and this is the Political Cesspool. The Political Cesspool, known across the South and worldwide as the South's foremost populist conservative radio program. And here to guide you through the murky waters of the political cesspool is your host, James Edwards. Ladies and gentlemen, during the first two hours, you heard from two longtime friends and regularly uh, featured guests, Sam Dixon and Dr. Virginia Abernathy, respectively. Tonight, in our third and final hour, we are welcoming a gentleman making his debut appearance to the broadcast, if you can believe it. We've had a lot of first-time guests this year, and we're very excited about that. Talent proliferates, and we welcome now to the broadcast Mark Time. Uh, Mark Time discussing his action-packed book, The Man in the Mirror. Now, uh, a lot of you may have noticed, I know Keith Alexander has certainly noticed, that we have been plumbing the depths of the Antelope Hill Stable of Talent, antelopehillpublishing.com. So many great books, so many great authors, and we have partnered with them late last year and uh, throughout this year as well, and uh, they have been uh, supplying us with uh, no shortage of talent. And uh, anyway, here is another. Mark, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing excellent. How about you? I'm fantastic. It's uh, even better now that you're here, and we're going to be talking about your book, The Man in the Mirror, and it's an Antelope Hill uh, title, but before we do that, let's talk a little bit more about Mark Time. Every time we have a first-time guest, we'd like to hear a little bit about their origins. You are, as we mentioned, an American dissident author. You hail from Middle America. Uh, you're the author of The Man in the Mirror. That's the book we're going to be talking about in just a moment. It's a novel that deals with heavy-hitting themes such as alienation in one's own country, the importance of action, and the meaning of struggle. Uh, but you've also uh, published several sh- short stories that have been published in the 2022 and 2023 Antelope Hill Writing Competition anthologies. You're a passionate writer, a dedicated activist, and you seek to tell our people's stories in an era when many seek to erase them. Let's start there, but let's actually start even before then. How did you arrive at these positions uh, before you even began to write about them? Right. So I began... Uh life in uh what, what i'll say is uh your sort of milk toast conservative background um very establishment gop party lines that's what i was raised with and what i grew up with but as uh as many of your viewers may know uh when you are trapped in that mindset so many things just don't make sense and that's how i was going through life looking at the world around me and it just not making sense and around the time of donald trump's uh first presidential campaign in 2016 uh i was introduced to a number of uncomfortable truths about the uh, power structure in this nation, those who control it, the means by which they control it, and the intersection of private and public power between corporate and government, the collaboration. Um, and suddenly things started to click. Once I understood that um, it was not separate beasts controlling the discourse, it was the tentacles sliding from behind the same curtain, uh, from the same beast behind the curtain, 
um, things started to make sense. So uh, it was a long journey and one I wrestled with because a lot of these truths are very uncomfortable and, and go against many of the things that we are taught really from birth. Um, but at the end of it, I learned that the value of truth is far better than a comfortable lie. Now, Mark, this is Keith Alexander. Uh, we've been talking with all of our various guests so far this evening about how decorum and propriety in the public sphere now mm -hmm. has broken down to the point that we're talking about prosecuting and trying to convict a former president for 795 years total of offenses. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> now, how do we deal with that? Is that, uh, you know, are we bound by Marquis de Queensberry rules or should we, uh, you know, turn the tables on them? If we win this election, should we go after them, prosecute them? What are your thoughts about that? Well, state power is a lot like a knife on the table and you're sitting across from your enemy and they have their hand fully grasped on the handle. And if we have the opportunity to take that knife in the form of using state power, we should use it because our enemy has no compunctions on using it on us. So if we, when we're in power, leave the knife on the table and say, oh, we're the better, better man here. No, we're not. We're dead after. <laughs> we're not the better man. We're dead. Um, so uh, to answer your question, uh, there's... Yes, you can, you can argue that's a breakdown in decorum or a breakdown in norms or institutions, but uh, in my opinion, the, that cat is already out of the bag, and it is now a scramble to seize institutions or your ideology and uh, to then use those institutions to protect your ideology, to protect your people, and protect your faith or what have you. Um, and if you don't use those institutions or state power or prosecution or whatever you want to name it, you're leaving, you're just conceding that ground to your ideological enemies. And our ideological enemies, Mark, uh, intend to annihilate us. You Absolutely. Know, they made that it is a, abundantly it's clear. It reminds me of the saying by, attributed to Oscar Wilde, who said that in the real That's world. That's the third time tonight. I know. The but third time that we had three different but, but guests. He, he hasn't heard it everybody. before. <laughs> That's right. It's yeah. news. It's, it may be news to him. Yeah, the news is from Oscar Wilde. In the real world, goodness isn't rewarded and evil isn't punished. What did uh, Instead, Vilfredo, what did Vilfredo, what did Pareto say? He said, okay, I'll tell you that after I finish this <laughs> one. It said, uh, instead, victory belongs to the strong and defeat is thrust upon the weak. Now, Vilfredo Pareto, a 19th century socialist, said, when I am weak, I ask you for justice and equality because those are your principles. When I am strong or when I'm in control, I deny equality and justice to you because that is my principle. That's right. the type of people we're dealing with now, and we've got to understand exactly. it. We've got to, uh, you know, have the scales fall. The right has to get hard again, and that's what, you know, that's why. I love partnering with people like Antelope Hill. I mean, the time to be oh so careful and oh so oh, concerned about how other people feel is, I, I don't know if it ever existed in my lifetime, truly, 
Truly, I mean, certainly people pretended that it, it did all the way up until the last well, couple of years. That, but everything I mean, in the left was I, alive. For example, the civil rights movement wasn't pro-black; it was anti-white. And right. I think people have come to understand that now. I lo- I love edge lords. I I I love the people that are pushing the envelope. I love the Antelope Hill catalog. I love talking to people like Mark Time. And you're getting to know him just a little bit in this segment. But when we come back, we're going to talk about his his book. Um, the Man in the Mirror, which is an Antelope Hill pub, uh, uh, title, antelopehillpublishing.com, and it's, it's priced to sell, I might add, uh, but we're going to learn a lot more about it here in the next segment. We've got the author with us right now, Mark Time, making his debut appearance. Learned a little bit more about him in the previous uh, segment, the segment you've just listened to. Now we're going to get into his book, The Man in the Mirror, and we'll get into it in about three minutes' time. Stay tuned, everybody. Scott Bradley here. Most Americans are painfully aware that the nation is on the wrong track and in dire straits. Unfortunately, most political pundits only nibble around the edges when they claim to address the issues. Even worse, many of the so-called solutions are simply rewarmed servings of what got us into the mess we currently face. And the politicians think we're so gullible and naive that we'll buy their lies that they have reformed and now understand where they led us astray. Unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that they simply wish to continue to hold power. The solution to America's challenges is found in returning to the timeless principles found in the United States Constitution. My book and lecture series will reawaken in Americans an understanding and love of the principles which made this nation the freest, most prosperous, happiest, and most respected nation on earth. Visit to preservethenation.com and order my book and lectures to begin the restoration of this great nation. Okay, girls, about finished with your lesson on money. Daddy, what is a buy-sell spread for gold coins? Well, when you sell a gold coin to a coin shop that's worth, say, $1,200, you don't actually get $1,200. But don't worry, we're members of UPMA now, so we don't have to worry about that. Daddy, what if somebody steals our gold? We don't have any gold at the house. It's stored safely in the UPMA vault, securely and insured. But the S&P 500 outperformed gold. Daddy, gold is a bad investment. Some people do think of it that way. But actually, gold is money. And as members of the United Precious Metals Association, we can use our gold at any store, just like a credit card. Or I can ask them to drop it right into Mommy and Daddy's bank account, because we're a UPMA member family. Find out more at upma.org. That's upma.org. Why don't we say to the government writ large that they have to spend a little bit less? Anybody ever had less money this year than you had last? Anybody better have a 1% pay cut? You deal with it. That's what government needs, a 1% pay cut. If you take a 1% pay cut across the board, you have more than enough money to actually pay for the disaster relief. But nobody's going to do that because they're fiscally irresponsible. Who are they? Republicans. Who are they? Democrats. Who are they? Virtually the whole body is careless and reckless with your money. So the money will not be offset by cuts anywhere. The money will be added to the debt, and there will be a day of reckoning. What's the day of reckoning? The day of reckoning may well be the collapse of the stock market. The day of reckoning may be the collapse of the dollar. When it comes, 
I can't tell you exactly, but I can tell you it has happened repeatedly in history when countries ruin their currency. get on the show and speak with James and the gang, call us toll-free at 1-866-986-6397. And now, back to tonight's show. It's a zany night here at TPC. Uh, our Florida production studio got hit by uh, the hurricane, whose name we can't even pronounce. And uh, anyway, production went back to the Utah studio for the first time in two years, and we're still using production about 10 years ago. <laughs> and that's what you've got. Uh, but it's good to hear some of these old anthems. It takes me back in time to a better time. Yeah, well, and we, we, all, we always ask, was it better during, uh, you know, Neil Sadaka's time or, or now? But, I mean, it was, it was actually better two or three years ago. Well, than if, if you want to answer that question from James's point of view, ask him, was it when, better? Was, when was doo-wop uh, at its height? And that's when America was at its best. <laughs> Touche, my friend, touche. But uh, but the, the only thing that calls that into question is to <laughs> the only thing that calls that into question is when I go to antelopehillpublishing.com and I look at this catalog. I mean, this is it. This is where we need to be, and this is where our people, I hope, are going. Mark Time is with us tonight. You got to know him a little bit better during the opening segment of this, our third hour, but let's talk a little bit more about his book now, his featured piece at antelopehillpublishing.com, The Man in the Mirror. And uh, I'll read now from the back cover of that particular book. Joe Blaine is an average young man, but after a series of catastrophic events unfolds in his life, his world becomes forever changed. Launched into a perilous journey he never would have chosen, but what he sorely needs, Joe learns the true value of struggle in a time when everyone would deem it pointless. In Joe's world, gone are the days of a typical coming-of-age story as society obscures truth and abuses its people. Instead, Joe is forced through adversity to take an honest look at himself and reconcile all his actions and inactions with the man he sees staring back at him. As a result, Joe discovers that what seems like mere chance or inevitability is in reality the intersection of the deliberate actions of others and the guiding hand of Providence with a capital P, I might add. Fast-paced, action-packed, and thought-provoking. And it's available at antelopehillpublishing.com, The Man in the Mirror. And we're talking with its author right now, Mark Time, takes the reader on an adventure along with Joe as he not only learns the truth about his society, but also takes control of his own life. Antelope Hill Publishing is proud to present Mark Time's first novel, The Man in the Mirror, a bold contribution to the world of dissident fiction. And fiction is so key. We talk about autobiographical stuff. We talk about historical stuff. I think we need to be creative. We need to have the arts on our side. Mark, tell us more about your book, The Man in the Mirror. Yes. So I wrote it at a time when I was faced with a series of increasingly ghastly concessions to a system that hates me. 
Um, I used to be in the military and they were demanding of me uh, things that went against my conscience and I refused. Um, so that is, that is the backdrop for when I started writing this novel um, of essentially game planning. What ought I to do when the system demands of me things that I am unable to do morally uh, or in my conscience? And that is the opening scene or opening setting in the book as well, where uh, Joe Blaine is a, um, I'll, I'll say a sort of neo-yuppie, uh, young, upwardly mobile, um, desires to better himself and leave his provincial background and uh, move to the coast and get a nice job in tech. Um, but the uh, powers that be, this is set in the near future, have set up a series of uh, guardrails to keep everyone in line. Um, particularly, and, let me just say this, Mark, particularly if you are white, working class, or lower middle class, all the ladders right. for societal upward mobility have been withdrawn for you. Right, exactly. And in this uh, near future world, there is something called the Office for Inclusive Housing Opportunities, where the government, uh, it is essentially just drawing out the trends that are already here. They have taken full control over the uh, distribution of housing, and they are doing so according to, quote, equitable principles, which of course means anti-white. And in order for a white individual to live in the nice area uh, and avoid the not nice part of town. They must get approved for an annual recertification voucher to stay in their privileged area. And that is the opening setting for Joe. Uh, he is faced with, again, subduing himself and groveling to the system and getting his housing voucher but ultimately, he finds that the more he stoops, the more his face gets buried in the mud, and he can't stoop any lower. Well, uh, you know, there's so many ways that we confront that. For example, if you're in the military and they want to require you to have a COVID vaccination, what are you to do? Uh, or if, if they ask if you're from the South and you're white and you're heterosexual. And they Which want, is the backbone of the American military for time and memorial. And they want you to basically uh, defame yourself and your ancestors. Uh, see, we're, you're exactly, that's what is required. And quite frankly, I don't think even if you submit to that, they're not going to let you in the party. Uh, you know, right. the party is for other people. Right. Well, this is, uh, again, I got to say, folks, I mean, Antelope Hill Publishing has been a wonderful partner with this program. Uh, I have really enjoyed getting to know the principals there and the various authors. We had Marty Phillips on recently here, and now Mark Time, The Man in the Mirror. It's all right there at Antelope Hill Publishing, and there's uh, stuff of historical significance. I mean, going back to uh, our conversations with Mike Pinovich and Warren Baylog and Trey Garrison, uh, some of uh, they've got a uh, he's got a book there too. Trade us uh, thrilling adventures uh, among the early settlers is something that I read to my my son, my my eight year old boy 
every night. Uh, we work through a little bit at a time. It's all there at antelopehillpublishing.com. Uh, Mark, uh, great to talk to you tonight. Great to be able to feature an honor. Not just great, but an honor. Not th that we're doing a service. You are doing the service to us and to our audience by bringing uh, forth. And I think it's so important that we have these works of art, these works of fiction uh, to present to a people. We need to be winning over the public, and this is the way we do it. The Man in the Mirror. Final word to you, Mark Time, the author of The Man in the Mirror, AntelopeHillPublishing.com. Final word to you, anything you'd want to convey to the audience that we have not yet covered? Well, I'd just like to say um, this is a great book to take to a family member or a friend who is so close to discovering the truth, who hasn't fully grasped it, just wondering exactly how I used to be, wondering why things just don't make sense. This is meant to be the gateway to the truth. Um, it is meant to, through the use of fiction, introduce one to the uh, a true hard look at what society has truly progressed to by just taking those trends and extending them out by a couple of years and um, have them read it, discuss it with them. And um, I find that it is a, a great gateway uh, for conversation. It's meant to be something you can give to somebody who's just on the cusp. They see, I mean, that is important as well, because in 2004, you know, I would say, here we are on on the edge of it all, and if you would just tune into this program, but, but the line continues to be redrawn, does it not? And uh, here we are now much further down the line and continuing to gain ground still, and we're doing it with people like Mark Time, author of The Man in the Mirror, AntelopeHillPublishing.com. Get it tonight. Ebook, paperback, AntelopeHillPublishing.com. Mark, thanks for spending a little bit of your time tonight with us. We'll be right back right after this. Pursuing Liberty. Using the Constitution as our guide. You're listening to Liberty News Radio. USA News. I'm Jerry Barmash. President Biden visited parts of Florida on Saturday that were devastated by Hurricane Idalia. Biden took an aerial tour and spoke in Live Oak, one of the towns in the process of recovering. The spirit of this community is remarkable. When people are in real trouble, the most important thing you can give them is hope. There's no hope like your neighbor walking across the street and see what they can do for you, or the local pastor or someone coming in and offering you help. The White House says they were surprised that Governor Ron DeSantis chose not to meet the president, Fox News reported. Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre said there was no indication that DeSantis was not going to be there. Former President Trump is maintaining a stranglehold on the GOP. A new poll from the Wall Street Journal gives Trump a 46-point lead over DeSantis. The survey also put Trump and President Biden tied in a potential general election matchup. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson, who was a mainstay of Democratic politics for decades, died Friday. He was 75. Richardson was the Energy Secretary and United Nations Ambassador in the Clinton administration. Richardson died in his sleep at his summer home in Massachusetts. A man who turned a beach bum mentality into a lucrative life has died. Jim 
Jimmy Buffett, known for such hits as Margaritaville and Cheeseburger in Paradise, died at the age of 76. Five people in Virginia have died from complications of a rare but serious illness following a statewide outbreak of meningococcal disease. An alligator bit a child at a New Orleans beach that's been closed to the public for nearly 60 years. The hospital said the child was being treated as a trauma patient. This is USA News. Everything is expensive right now. Gas, food, you name it. You're spending more, you're making the same or less money. So, what do you do? You rack up credit card debt, that's what you do. It's not your fault, it's the economy. And guess what? If you rack up too much credit card debt like some of us, you can't pay your bills. Then the credit card companies, as nice as they are, start hounding you for money. Then you start your downward spiral. A smart thing for you to do is to call the Zero Debt. They can help you consolidate all your credit card bills into one affordable payment. Millions of people have done it. It works to make you debt-free. Make this free call right now. It costs you nothing to learn more. 800-503-7846. That's 800-503-7846. Welcome back to Get On The Show. Call us on James's Dime at 1-866-986-6397. Well, as I said before, always good to talk with one of the stallions of the Antelope Hill stable of talent, antelopehillpublishing.com. You just heard from Mark Time, author of The Man in the Mirror, and you can get it tonight at antelopehillpublishing.com. Well, as we've also been talking about tonight and in recent weeks, we have had a barn-burning trip through the Old South. It's been hot times in the Old South this summer. I have visited and spent time in nine out of the 13 Confederate states. We are being generous and including, of course, our comrades in Kentucky and Missouri in that counting of the 13 Confederate states. But nevertheless, uh, we have been in nine out of the 13 of them, not including Kentucky and Missouri, I might add. <laughs> and it's, it's and of course, April. you could almost put Oklahoma in there. It was uh, a territory at the time, but uh, it's certainly southern in its outlook. Well, it's one of the, the, the reddest states uh, on, the, on the planet, uh, as, as we said this evening. But yes, we've been all around, and uh, we, we have seen some things. <laughs> <laughs> but I have seen few things. They thi- cannot be unseen. <laughs> <laughs> Once you've I, seen them, they're etched in your memory forever. I have seen few things like I saw last week or two weeks ago. It all blurs together uh, in Alabama. So, as you know, I, I believe it was two weeks ago. To, it was two weeks ago tonight. I don't believe it. It was two weeks ago tonight uh, that I co-hosted TPC with Jared Taylor Brad Griffin featured prominently in that program as a John Friend and John Hill and others. And that was in Wetumpka, Alabama, which is just a hop, skit and a jump from Montgomery and only about an hour from Selma. And don't you know, we visited them all. And Selma is not sweet home <laughs> Alabama. It is basically your worst nightmare come to life, <laughs> come, come, become reality. Well, this is what happens when liberalism takes over and controls a, a, a community. Is it just liberalism, though? I mean, it's really racial reality. 
Well, it's also liberalism. There are some used, white liberals. But they're not living in Selma. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and get this. This they was visit <laughs> Selma every year, but they certainly aren't going to live there. This was a trip so memorable. Jared Taylor wrote not just one, but two featured pieces about our time in Alabama two weeks ago for AmericanRenaissance.com. Now, that was two weeks ago. We were live on the air with Jared at the Southern, uh, the SCC conference. Not the SEC, but the Southern Cultural Conference in uh, Wetumpka. Uh, but we didn't know two weeks ago on Saturday night what we would see a day later when we visited Montgomery and Selma. What we saw in that one day spawned two featured pieces at AmericanRenaissance.com. The first one was Historic Selma. That is actually a video piece. You can actually see what we tried and our meager abilities to describe to you last week on the show. We spent an entire hour, the second hour of last week's show, I spent trying to tell you trying to describe to you in the verbal form what I saw in Selma. Jared put it to video and it's, picture. It's, believe me, the best way I could describe it is to say it's hell on earth. Okay? <laughs> That's exactly what has happened now that the left has had their way, driven all the white people out of Selma. What is left? A hellscape. He did another, vi he did another article, though, that just came out a couple of days ago. August the 31st. He calls it the schizophrenic South, which is a little bit misleading. He talks about, I mean, schizophrenic in so much as within the same city block, you have the most magnificent memorial to the Confederacy that I've ever seen with my own eyes. And it's there still standing proudly on the grounds of the Alabama State Capitol in Montgomery. And you have there also on the same grounds within just feet of each other, a monument to President Jefferson Davis still standing proudly at the front entrance of the Alabama State Capitol in Montgomery. And you have there, even behind that, the gold star upon which it marks the spot. The star marks the spot where President Davis was inaugurated as president of the Confederacy in 1861. It's all right there. And within the same city block, you have... Dexter Avenue, so-called Baptist Church, where Martin Luther King, so-called pastored, so-called Martin Luther King, so-called pastored for six years. And you have behind that the Southern Poverty Law Center. The Poverty Palace, as they call it. The Poverty Palace. You have it all there within a city block of one another. And it, so th that's what he describes as schizophrenic. What, what, it's not so much schizophrenic as it is multiracial. So you have one race celebrating its heroes and another race celebrating its its heroes, and then you have the Jewish um, section, you know, in its in its own palace. Uh, they're all within one block. But <laughs> and and then, then on the other hand, you go to Selma and you see that schizophrenia isn't that bad. <laughs> uh, you know, you have nothing. There is no redeeming quality in anything that you're going to see in Selma. It's all that Selma, Selma has a fountain of black wisdom. That's being used as a public urine. We're, <laughs> we're about to get to that, Keith. Uh, but uh, so, D Jared, after our 
verbal recitation last week in the second hour of my personal reflections on Selma, which you know were shared by Jared and Brad Griffin and John Friend and John Hill. We, we talked about that last week. Then, I believe it was on Monday, a couple of days later, Jared posted his historic Selma illustrated feature and video to American Renaissance, but it was a trip so nice, he couldn't just write about it once. He had to write about it twice. And he wrote this title, The Schizophrenic South. He talks about the wonderful time that he and I and others shared at the uh, Southern Cultural Center's annual conference. Jared and I were both featured speakers. He talks about that, and he talks about our time in Montgomery, where you have a monument to Jefferson Davis right outside the front steps of the state capitol. You have a monument to Rosa Parks. She's in her unnatural position. She's standing. She's only known for the few minutes. She made all of her uh, guild and made all of her uh, notoriety by sitting and on it's, a bus. Yeah, exactly. We saw the monument. I was like, what is this? She's sitting? This isn't authentic. And you see, actually, the picture. We're looking at it here in the studio. You see, Jared, it's a life-size picture. She's just a diminutive woman. She's holding her bag. She's smiling. She's got these uh, wire rim glasses. But you have the... The monument of Jefferson Davis looking down on the rest of Montgomery from the Capitol. You have this, uh, the, the spot where he was inaugurated as president of the Confederacy. You have this. I mean, how would you describe this, Keith? I, this is the picture that Jared and I took. It's at Amarin.com. This is the, I've seen a lot of Confederate monuments. And even I did not know that a monument this magnificent still stood on state Capitol grounds in Alabama. What do you see here? Well, i tell you what I see. I see a beautiful monument. And the cornerstone laid by Jefferson Davis himself in 1886. But see, there's a larger lesson in this. If there's something beautiful in the schizophrenic South, white people had primarily to do with it. If there's something that is bad, a la Selma and the uh, Fountain of uh, Black Wisdom, okay, <laughs> things like this, that's what happens when the white people are driven out and black people are left to their own resources. They're sitting there. There's a great article right now in Occidental Observer that I would recommend to any of you about blacks and begging. Basically, when they get there, they beg. It's just like going to Sub-Saharan Africa. If you get off an airplane in Sub-Saharan Africa, basically you'll have 20 people with their hands look, out. Look, well, that's exactly what <laughs> happened to you all when you went to Selma. Well, we said this. Like, well, that was actually in Montgomery. Now, in Selma, they did the same thing. But in Montgomery, we found the Rosa Parks statue, which did is Did you not find any neo-Confederates going around there begging for money? For didn't me. find any of them. But just within walking distance of the Jefferson Davis Monument on the Capitol grounds of, Mon of Montgomery at the Alabama State House... Uh, you go two blocks down, you found the Rosa Parks Monument, and there waiting are black panhandlers offering you. They'll take your picture. And, Unofficial tour guides. I well, and, and we let the one, because, I mean, somebody's got to take the picture, right? And, you know, we all wanted to be in it. So we allowed it. He asked very nicely, and he looked polite. Name it a price. Well, after he took the picture, he then asked for fried chicken and uh you know, so there's that. What else the money it would take to buy a bucket of fried chicken? You've got <laughs> that's at nine in the morning, but you've got the monument where that marks the inaugural parade where Jefferson Davis himself marched to where he was inaugurated. It was the first time Dixie was played as a band arrangement. You've got all this stuff. You got that. You got the Poverty Palace. You got Rosa Parks. It's all there in Montgomery. Again, you got the Freedom Rides Museum. And look at the Freedom Rides Museum and the Poverty Palace. 
They are examples of post-modern What do you see when you look at the Poverty Palace? This is the picture that we took. It looks like the building is splitting in half. And you can't find a front door. It's very weird. Because I don't want anybody coming in there. (laughs) But they had security around the clock. See. Nice black guy. We talked to him. Everything that is representing black South or liberal South is ugly and an affront to good taste. Everything that represents the old South and the whites is in the most, you know, immaculate uh, sense, good taste. Beautiful architecture, beautiful sculptures. Uh, everything is good. So look, look at this. Side. I'm and asking then, Keith to look, look at this right now. The Jefferson Davis Monument right there within feet of where he was originally inaugurated, which is marked by a gold star when he was inaugurated as president of the Confederacy. You see the first White House of the Confederacy here, a very stately there in downtown Montgomery. All of this was, is within a two-minute walk of, every, of everything we're talking about. And, and then that right there, that monument, though, that monument right there is a massive, massive well, it's tribute. Like, like I've never seen a better equestrian statue anywhere in the world than the one of Nathan Bedford Forrest that we had here in Memphis that had to be removed to prevent it from being vandalized by uh, you know, the black powers that be in Memphis. But describe this right here, uh, which is still standing, I might add. Still standing. Unlike the Nathan Bedford Forest, when they sold uh, that multi-million dollar property for you know, $1,000 to a crony uh, to circumvent state law, but here still in Alabama on the state capitol grounds, no less, is this monument. What are you looking at here, Keith? What are you seeing here with your own eyes? A great base, a big obelisk, uh, a wonderful statuaries around it, uh, a kind of olive uh, wreath uh, and bas relief down at the bottom of it. Everything is beautiful, proportionate, and a credit to... It's, it commemorates all branches of the Confederate military, and the cornerstone was laid by President Davis himself in 1886. And compare that with that. the Poverty Palace... <laughs> Postmodern brutalism <laughs> at its worst, and also the uh, that museum you were talking about. Again, nothing distinguished whatsoever. And then, if you want to see where things go and they're taken to their logical <laughs> conclusion, go to Selma. Go to Selma. So, so this is there, it. There's nothing in Selma worth seeing. Uh, and as <laughs> as Jared said, you would think that black people would be embarrassed, as, embarrassed, and ashamed by this, but they're not. Right. You know, that in fact, they're trying to live off of white guilt. The few blacks that are still around there uh, are trying to be unofficial tour guides so they can shake shekels or money out of the people that come there to visit it. And it's, you know, it's really, it, it, it tells you what the civil rights movement was all about. It is not about helping black people. It's about harming white people. That's what it was all about from the very beginning. And where does it get the black people? It gets them a, uh, a decaying hulk of a city that has nothing in it. Nothing. You can't even find these so-called uh, museums they have aren't <laughs> even open to the public. Jared is about to explain it in his own words. Now, two weeks ago, Jared... Uh substituted for Keith for three full hours as my co-host there at the Southern Cultural Center Conference in Wetumpka, Alabama. That was two weeks ago tonight. The very next morning, we went to Montgomery. He wrote an article about it 
the most recent article at Amarin.com, The Schizophrenic South. And a week before that, he wrote Historic Selma. So one day trip, two featured articles at Amarin.com, and the first of which, Historic Selma, he turned into a video as well. Now, we spent an entire hour last week, I did, uh, explaining what we saw that day. Jared is going to sum it up in 10 minutes, and then we're going to give Keith the final word. Here we go. This is what uh, Jared and I saw, and this was his recollections of it for American Renaissance that day in Selma. Selma, Alabama is one of the high holy places of the civil rights movement. The 1965 march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, or what became known as Bloody Sunday, is supposed to be such an earth-shaking event in the liberation of black people that U.S. presidents fly in, link arms with black worthies and white wannabes, and walk across the bridge. Here's Joe Biden performing the obligatory ceremony this year, along with that champion of equal rights, Al Sharpton. Al is holding hands with Jesse Jackson in a wheelchair. Mr. Biden gave a pep talk. We should learn everything. Everyone should know the truth of Selma. I agree. The truth of Selma is that it is an appalling dump. Historic Selma became historic only as part of the movement for black voting rights. In the 1960s to vote in Alabama, you had to pay a poll tax, pass a literacy test, and know something about the Constitution. This kept some white people and almost all black people off the rolls. Black leaders decided to protest this system by marching 50 miles from Selma to Montgomery, the Alabama state capital. Much of the route was two lanes, and hundreds of marchers would have been a traffic hazard, so Governor George Wallace refused to grant a permit. On March 7, 1965, 600 people marched anyway, and the first leg out of Selma was over the Edmund Pettus Bridge across the Alabama River. State troopers and sheriff's deputies met the march, and a voice boomed out over a PA system. This is an illegal assembly. Disperse and go back. The marchers refused, and the standoff lasted about 15 minutes while some marchers knelt and prayed. The police issued a two-minute warning. They then marched forward with batons held horizontally. There was resistance, mayhem, clouds of tear gas, and forcible removal of marchers. Scores of blacks were clubbed, several of them bloodied, and 17 had to go to the hospital. 18 officers were also injured. This set to put Selma on the map. The town is now 80% black and has a population of 18,000. That's down 37% from its population in 1965, when the town was about half black, but run by whites. Industry left with the whites, and as Wikipedia explains, the city now is focusing its income on tourism for its major influence in civil rights and desegregation. It's doing a terrible job. The other day, I drove with a group to the very site of Bloody Sunday at the end of the Pettus Bridge. There I found the National Voting Rights Museum and Institute. Believe it or not, this wreck patched with a sagging plywood wall, is a functioning museum. But this celebration of Bloody Sunday is closed on Sundays. Next door are garages explaining that education is the key to control our destiny. 
You will note that the saga of American blacks begins in Egypt, from which they were apparently shipped as slaves to America. These black Union troops do not look as though they will be marching anytime soon. Black history progresses across the Pettus Bridge to Barack Obama to the message from kings and queens to presidents. Across the street, still at the foot of the bridge, is this monument to martyrs, so badly maintained the text is illegible. This lamp pillar is missing so many bricks it could fall over any time. The bridge crossing Jubilee headquarters and souvenir shop is also in the same location. Unfortunately, it too is padlocked on Sundays and Mondays. The locale is not prepossessing. The maintenance crew must have been off that week. On the side of the headquarters building is a tribute to Martin Luther King. Right next to that is a sculpture honoring Dr. King and his wife. Love is the bedrock of justice and freedom. Doc is known to have had at least 40 different extramarital lovers. This crumbling thing doesn't seem to lead anywhere. The best maintained memorial in this cluster is a historic marker about lynching in Selma. This electronic message board, do something for Selma, was not working. We crossed the bridge into Selma proper and were immediately greeted by these buildings. Here is another downtown building that has seen happier times. This is an especially terrifying downtown building. The Selma Times Journal continues to publish, thanks to its corporate owner, Boone Newspapers. You can see the arch of the Pettus Bridge just to the left. Alas, the building to the right, the former home of the National Boarding Rights Museum, is a shuttered hulk. It appears to be abandoned, but it sports a sign directing history-minded visitors to the tumble-down museum we visited on the other side of the bridge. Water Avenue was once a thriving riverfront commercial street, but as we drove down it, nothing was open, and most of the buildings seemed to be abandoned. The only cars you see in this video belonged to white tourists who seemed to be lost. The street was otherwise vacant. This area seems to have been taken over by a series of black uplift establishments that are faring even worse than the National Voting Rights Museum. Here you will find the African art exhibit, but it is boarded up. At the lower left is an invitation, drink from the fountain of African wisdom and be renewed. I was hoping for wisdom and renewal, but the fountain was dry. Next door is the Enslavement and Civil War Museum, which continues the Black Pharaohs theme. It was not open when we visited, and from the looks of the broken windows, it's not in business. Another downtown Water Avenue landmark is the Harmony Club, which was built in 1909 by Jewish citizens of Selma. A group of white developers bought the building a year and a half ago and planned to spiff it up. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, so I'm sure they will do a fine job, but not yet. Outside downtown, we found more traces of Selma's now-vanished Jewish community. This boarded-up synagogue, next door to a defunct carpet center. As is common in Africa, many establishments in Selma have their name and business painted on the wall. Mostly we saw ruin, a sad succession of tumble-down houses that are probably beyond redemption. A surprising number of them still appear to be at least partially inhabited. 
One of the saddest sites was the abandoned Good Samaritan Center. This was once a hospital known as... All right, he goes on from there. Ladies and gentlemen, to paint a verbal picture is to do the actual video disjustice uh, or unjust. It's unjust. Yeah, uh, but right. Check it out at amran.com. But here's one more thing about Selma Keith that I want you to comment on with a minute remaining. Uh, if you know the name Sheriff Jim Clark at all, you know him perhaps because he is pictured in a photograph on so-called Bloody Sunday appearing to be striking a woman with his billy club. Now, what you don't know, what you couldn't possibly have seen, is the fact that this woman, this black adjutant, had uh, struck him before in the back, immediately before the photo was captured. I actually found a video uh, by a major American university in its archives. It's a video interview of Sheriff Jim Clark recounting his personal recollections of Selma and Bloody Sunday, very much on par with our interview with uh, officer Drew Lackey, the officer who had uh, arrested and uh, was photographed in that iconic photo with Rosa Parks. And in this in this interview, Sheriff Jim Clark said, with regards to Bloody Sunday, I got there, and as they came down on the troopers, they were ordered to return, and they didn't do it, and the troopers moved in, and as they did, the marshals fell to the ground, and as the troopers moved on them, that was when they attacked the troopers with ice picks and straight razors and knives and even broken glass, and that was when they used tear, glass, uh, tear gas on them, and they started to retreat across the bridge. He talks about this Amelia Boynton, who Jared mentions in this video, we went to her her home. She was so-called uh, one of the pioneers of the Selma resistance. He talks about she and her cohorts had gone into a courthouse and began to urinate all over the desks there at the courthouse. And when they arrested them, the media began to capture the arrests. The media didn't get on so-called Bloody Sunday the 18 officers who were injured that day as a result of uh, the bricks. Illegal. And, the illegal... Uh, March that they were doing in violation of a court order. Broken glass, knives, bottles, bricks being hurled at them. More officers were injured that day than the so-called black voting rights advocates. But you well, wouldn't know it if you, uh, if, you, if you look at the history that was written. Well, all I can say is if you go to Selma, don't drink the water, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week, everybody. I wish we had more time to spend on that. I had intended to spend more time on that. I want to thank Keith Alexander. I want to thank Virginia Abernathy, Mark Times, Sam Tixon. Amrin.com. Check out Jared's two articles on Montgomery and Selma over the course of the last week. We spent time there. I'll never forget it. You need to see it to believe it. We'll talk to you next week. Good night, everybody.